Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. If you came for fun, concise political analysis, you came to the right place today. If you're looking for a good martini, better luck Thursday, I guess. Jim, uh, we've got two bads and a crazy today. Let's dive right in. And one of these has been recurring really since last summer. And uh, no matter what people try to do to get kids back in school, the teachers' unions will find increasingly flimsy reasons why we just can't do it yet. You're not being responsible. I don't think the science supports it. So they needed a ton of money from the COVID relief bill, supposedly, to get schools uh, prepared for at least in-person learning in the fall, if not sooner. They got $122 billion for ventilation or whatever else they wanted to do with it. Uh, Jim, not good enough. The CDC says, you know what? Three feet's good enough uh, between people and schools now. Also not good enough. Bo Erickson over at CBS News with the update on this. Randy Weingarten is really the person at the tip of the spear here for the teachers union. She's president of the 1.7 million member American Federation of Teachers. She is disputing Dr. Rochelle Walensky and the CDC saying, yes, you can take it down to three feet of physical distancing in the schools. But Weingarten says, we're not convinced that the evidence supports changing physical distancing requirements at this time. Our concern is that the cited studies do not identify the baseline mitigation strategies needed to support three feet of physical distancing. Uh, she also says the studies were not conducted in our nation's highest density and least resource schools which have poor ventilation, crowding, and other structural challenges. Not to be outdone on the issue of money, Erickson says Weingarten also indicated in her letter that they need more money, that uh, the roughly $122 billion sent to schools through Biden's rescue plan may not be enough to implement changes, saying, quote, districts lack the human resources and institutional planning ability to make changes like this quickly. So... Jim, they're looking under every rock, digging through every trash can, looking for an excuse to not do what everybody wants to be done here. I think there's a recent study, for example, in Falls Church in Northern Virginia here that over 99% of parents want in-person schooling five days a week in the fall. They're tired of this, but the teachers unions simply refuse to cooperate. Yeah. Now, a couple of days ago, Phil Kirpin, who's uh, kind of a conservative uh, researcher with uh, a syndicated columnist. I'm not sure where he had gotten this data, but basically, I think I think he may have compiled it himself. But he basically put together and concluded that as of like a week ago, slightly more than half the schools in America had gone to five days a week, uh, which, depending on where you live in the country, might be really surprising to you because there are some places that were uh, not open at all. I think it was something around 30 percent were in that hybrid format. Uh, so they're doing here in Fairfax County in two days a week, out two days a week, a combination, you know. And then there were about uh, 20% of the schools were just straight up completely closed, still doing completely online learning. We are now more than a, than a year past the, uh, uh, the, when the, you know, the school cancellation for most of the country. The argument that schools haven't had enough time is kind of ridiculous. The fact that they can do this in more than half the communities in America would demonstrate that unless you've got a raging outbreak in your community, you should be able to, you know, have a, a, at minimum, some sort of hybrid effort to get the kids back into the schools. Uh, and then a whole lot of communities have figured out how to do it five days a week. And of course, many private schools have managed to do this all over the week. 
I was pleasantly surprised because, you know, you and I have talked about this a bunch of times on this podcast. The position of the teachers unions is not always the position of the teachers and the the world in the United States have a whole lot of teachers who are really eager to get back into a classroom. Obviously, they want it to be done in a safe way, but, you know, they generally believe that with a certain amount of precautions, they can do it. And here in Fairfax County, when they said we're reopening two days, you know, we're splitting the kids up into two groups. Some are going two days a week. The other two are going the other two days of the week. Um, I think it was 83% of the teachers came back into the classroom. And that's great. And I think that's a good indicator that, you know, teachers themselves were tired of doing, trying to do distance learning. They did not join the profession because they wanted to stare at a computer screen all day. They like interacting with kids. And so it's one of the, the 17%, you know, maybe they got somebody at home who's really high risk or they have some other factor, or maybe they're just paranoid. They, they, for whatever their reasons, they chose not to, but most of the schools are figuring out a way to function with this. And there are just a certain number of school districts that aren't even trying at all on any level. And there's just a certain number of school districts where the teachers union, particularly Chicago, particularly San Francisco, particularly big cities, where it's been this just, you know, rit- ridiculous roadblock. And you kind of wonder at some point, what does it take to get the teachers to stand up against the leadership of the own te- their own teachers unions? Because the argument from the, the wine gardens of the world is now, even with the year and even with billions upon billions being allocated in this most recent gargantuan spending bill, we just don't have enough time and money to figure out how to open up schools anytime soon. No, it's utterly outrageous. And I believe some uh, Republicans who are obviously against the, the the Biden COVID bill here said that roughly $200 billion from previous relief bills hadn't been spent yet. So we're looking at well over $300 billion uh, that's available here to address this uh, in pretty short order. But I mean, they're at the point now where they're going to find whatever excuse they can to not open. And it's under it's it's inexplicable why. I mean, most areas are pushing teachers to the front of the vaccination line. So certainly by the fall, any teacher who wants a vaccine is going to be able to have had a vaccine. And then the other thing here is that, you know, for 50 years, Joe Biden has been pretty much a pro organized labor lackey, gives them everything they want and possibly more in this bill. And they see the fact that he's giving them everything they want. So they're essentially saying, yeah, maybe we need some more. And you know what? He's probably going to try to give it to him in an infrastructure bill or something else. What Biden is learning the hard way is there will never be a point where the teachers unions say, oh, this is good. You know, OK, we're settled. We're happy. We're, you know, they're always no matter what you give them, they will always see it as an opportunity to ask for more. And they will not go back into the classroom, or at least them probably the leaders of these unions will not support teachers going back into the classroom until they, you know, somebody like Biden effectively, you know, slaps them down or smacks them down. I mean, metaphorically, I don't mean physically, but some sort of sense in which he basically says, you guys have been the obstacle. You're being ridiculous. You're being obstinate. It's time to get your butts back into the class. Like people want to see this. And I think if Biden did this tomorrow, he would, you know, his, his approval rating would jump another 10 points and you'd get a ton, you know, you went about real bipartisan approval. You went about approval you'd get in the cities, approval you'd get in the suburbs. You know, it'd be great for Biden. But he's so plugged into the idea of seeing teachers unions as this ally that he dare not cross. He's just probably never going to do it. We're going to get these mealy mouth. Boy, I'd like to see it happen. You know, uh, an excuse making for the teachers unions who really are being ridiculous about this. Joe Biden's never going to confront anyone he considers a core constituency of the Democratic Party. Yeah. It's just not who he is. And so he's going to get bullied around uh, by anybody who uh, has the chance to, to get in his face or uh, even the face of the people around him, whether it's Ron Klain, Kamala Harris or or somebody else. But uh, it's it's pathetic. All right. But uh, 
Joe Biden, one thing he does uh, have an affinity for, early lids, press lids, uh, perhaps early to bed. Uh, and hopefully he's got a MyPillow. But MyPillow is more uh, than just great pillows. They give that same attention to their towels and their sheets as well. And right now, the offer for three Martini Lunch listeners is to buy one, get one free on all six-piece towel sets and the Giza Dream Sheet sets. MyPillow towels have a proprietary technology that makes these towels highly absorbent, they are soft to the touch without that lotiony feel. They have a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. They're washable, they're dryable, and they have seven colors to choose from. The towels are great. As I've said, I've been uh, using them this week. Very absorbent, uh, very soft. Love them. Uh, the MyPillow Giza Dreams bedsheets are made with the world's best cotton. They also have the sateen weave, which gives them a luxurious finish and will have you sleeping great. 10-year warranty and 60-day money-back guarantee also on these. Washable and dryable, wide variety of colors and sizes. So go to MyPillow.com and three martini lunch listeners. Once you're there, you can get all six-piece towel sets and Giza sheets. Buy one, get one free. Use the promo code MARTINI at checkout or call 800-874-0104 and use the code there, too. That's MyPillow.com, code MARTINI, or call 800-874-0104 for buy one, get one free on all six-piece towel sets and the Giza Dream Sheet sets. Well, Jim, yesterday in our Bad Martini, we talked about how everyone and their brother are going to use the recent mass shootings in Atlanta and more recently Boulder to say, hey, this just proves that we need to do what I've said all along when it comes to guns or some other issue related to uh, any particular mass shooting. And just like clockwork, Joe Biden was that guy yesterday saying it's time to get rid of the uh, assault weapons, the high capacity magazines. And it's time, of course, to pass his anti-gun agenda. We can ban assault weapons and high capacity magazines in this country once again. I got that done when I was a senator. It passed. It was law for the longest time. And it brought down these mass killings. We should do it again. We can close the loopholes in our background check system, including the Charleston loophole. That's one of the best tools we have right now to prevent gun violence. The Senate should immediately pass. Let me say it again. The United States Senate, I hope some are listening, should immediately pass the two House passed bills that close loopholes in the background check system. And, of course, you've got some Democrats on Capitol Hill saying this, this is the issue with which we have to kill the filibuster. It's just too important. But even the filibuster uh, being killed wouldn't help necessarily on this one, Jim. There is a ray of good news on this because they would need Joe Manchin, maybe one Republican, but I don't know if they'd get a Republican on this. But Manchin was asked about this yesterday. Do you support the Senate passing those House passed bills to expand background checks? And he says, quote, what the House passed? Not at all. I come from a gun culture. I'm a law-abiding gun owner. Uh, he supports basically saying that commercial transactions should be background checked. You don't know a person, then you need the background check. If I know a person, then no, Manchin said. So, Jim, uh, it's going to be a big fight if the Democrats want to get this done. But once again, the knee-jerk reaction, and it's not just the legislation that's already passed the House. He's going uh, assault weapons ban again, which is uh, misleading terminology. He says that the numbers of mass shootings went way down over the 10 years that that was in place. Pretty sure that's not the case because a lot of the school shootings and other mass shootings uh, that we remember from the mid to late 90s and into the early 2000s happened with that ban firmly in place. So what he says would make a big difference. The evidence doesn't really back up. Yeah, uh, the first thought on that last point there 
Greg, is that uh, crime went down in the late 90s uh, as part of a continue, really a generation long reduction in crime. And so I, I, I think it would, I wouldn't be surprised if gun crime overall declined during that time period. Uh, but also like Columbine, the Columbine school shootings occurred while the assault weapons ban was in place. Right. Uh, you know, mass shooters and assault weapons are not the same thing. And yes, sometimes mass shooters do use uh, what we consider, you know, what the, the nebulous term, but, you know, they, what would qualify as assault weapons under the old assault weapons ban. Uh, the Virginia Tech shooting, I believe the deadliest one in U.S. history. I have to go and check the figures, but that one was using handguns. Um, all of this talk about ammunition clip capacity and the idea that this is the secret, you know, this is what we need to do to stop the mass shootings. A guy brings three or four guns to a to his target. He's going to be able to shoot a lot of people before uh, police can get there if there's not police on scene already. So uh, all of these things are trying to dance around this. We, this could have been our good martini, uh, Greg, in the sense we could say, look, here's the good news. There's a Senate Democrat who says he's not going to sign on to Biden's gun control agenda. The bad news is that it's Joe Manchin. <laughs> and there are times that Joe Manchin can delight us on the right and he can be the guy who impedes the what biden wants that you know near a tandem and stuff like that. and there are times that he will fold like a cheap suit or fold like a card table whatever metaphor you want to use there javier becerra comes to mind um mansion does enjoy uh being the center of the spotlight and and kind of everybody kind of leans in wondering how he's going to vote on a particular subject i think he will not you know fold necessarily on this um, we all remember the, the campaign ads he once did of him shooting. I mean, clearly he likes to pose as a supporter of Second Amendment rights. Um, but I, based on past history, I don't think we can rule out completely that he would try to find some sort of middle ground that would leave a lot of Second Amendment supporters and gun owners feeling betrayed by this. Um, so only time will tell. And again, I don't know if I like the idea of Joe Manchin being the last line of defense for any particular right that you, uh, you know, constitutional right you want to see protected. No, no. Every time it comes down to this, you're like, oh, Georgia Senate races. How did that happen? Well, we know how it happened. But man, the consequences of that are massive. Absolutely massive. And it's not just on guns. It's on a whole lot of other things. They're doing H.R. 1, or at least the Senate version of that, on the floor now. And we'll see what happens there. There's clearly not 60 votes under the traditional rules, but we'll see what Manchin actually does. All right. Well, I got some good news for you, Jim. In addition to good deals on towels and sheets, we've got ritual multivitamins because, look, we have to be careful about what we're putting into our bodies. But you're not really sure often what you're getting when it comes to multivitamins and other things you can you can get over the counter. There could be sugars in there, GMOs, major allergens, synthetics. You don't need all that garbage, though. Ritual's clean, vegan-friendly multivitamin is formulated with high-quality nutrients in bioavailable forms that your body can actually use. Plus, it's got a fresh taste, and the delayed-release capsule design makes taking your vitamins easy. Now, Ritual is designed with your life stage in mind. So it's available for women, men, teens, and Ritual multivitamins are scientifically developed to help support different life stages. And it makes your healthy habits easy. Your multivitamins are delivered to your door every month with free shipping always. You can start, snooze, or cancel your subscription anytime. And if you don't love Ritual within your first month, they will refund your first order. 
There's no risk. You can cancel anytime and they'll refund it if you don't like it. What's not to love? But I think you won't cancel because I think you are going to like it. And they've got fantastic nutrients, uh, vitamin B12, vitamin D, and zinc, among others. So get key nutrients without the BS. Ritual is offering our listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash martini to start your ritual today. All right, Jim. The crazy martini is sometimes crazy, sometimes it's insane. Uh, this goes in a lot of different directions here. Could just be racist, really, what's happening here in our crazy martini. Yesterday, uh, we heard from folks up on Capitol Hill like Chad Pergram, longtime producer for Fox News. From the pool, Democratic Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth on effort to get more diverse nominees. Quote, I am a no vote on the floor on all non-diversity nominees. You know, I will vote for racial minorities and I will vote for LGBTQ, but anybody else I'm not voting for. He goes on to say that Duckworth said the trigger, her words, was being told by the White House, quote, well, you have Kamala. We're not going to put any more Asian Americans in the cabinet because you have Kamala. She says that was insulting. So, Jim, insane on so many levels. You point out in the morning jolt today that there's been a lot of uh, Asians nominated for pretty significant posts uh, in the Biden administration. Only Nira Tandon has been rejected. All the others seem to be on on likely glide paths to confirmation if they haven't been confirmed already. But Jim, I know we always say, what if Republicans did this? But think about this. I will vote for racial minorities and I will vote for LGBTQ, but anybody else I'm not voting for. That's racist. And it's also discrimination against straight people. So if you're a, a straight white liberal who's qualified for the job, sorry, out of luck. Then Maisie Hirono joined the parade. And then for some reason, they backtracked. I don't know if they got some sort of concession from the White House about future nominations or what it was. But uh, all of this uh, seems to have ended now. But Tammy Duckworth and Maisie Hirono uh, have definitely proven who they are. And uh, they're not anybody we want to be associated with. Yeah, I mean, they, they these two senators backed down and it's not clear. It appears they backed down because the Biden administration placated them and made some sort of concessions to them. I'd prefer they backed down because they realized the backlash that they were stirring with their outrageous, ridiculous positions. Because let's face it, Duckworth and Hirono for, for a couple hours yesterday afternoon were saying explicitly they were not going to judge any Biden administration nominees by the merits they were going to judge them by the color of their skin. That's racism. That's the exact inverse of what Martin Luther King talked about there. But let's do a little bit of background. So the, op- the objection from Duckworth is that Joe Biden doesn't have a secretary uh, in his cabinet that is Asian American. Now, I, the listeners of the podcast know it's a very diverse cabinet. It's a cabinet that has some people that you and I can live with and think we're not so bad. It's got so much people in the cabinet. We didn't like one bit, but you can't say that it is not ethnically diverse. It just happened to shake out that it did not have an Asian-American secretary of something. But Catherine Tai, who I believe is of Chinese-American heritage, is the U.S. trade representative. And the U.S. trade representative is considered a cabinet-level position. It's also worth noting that the OMB director would have been cabinet, uh, is considered a cabinet level position in most administrations. These are the sorts of things that's up to the president. It kind of basically only depends on whether you attend cabinet meetings. But the intriguing, a couple of things are jumping out about this. One, I, I kind of feel like it, it's the point where now we kind of need Jen O'Malley Dillon, the deputy chief of staff in Biden's White House, to, to come out and talk about what how, how did that exchange go down with, with Senator Duckworth? I guess the notion is that Duckworth said, why don't you have an Asian American secretary of something? 
not just in the cabinet, but a secretary position in the cabinet. And O'Malley Dillon made some sort of reference to Kamala Harris, pointing out that, and this is, you know, uh, reference to Vice President Kamala Harris's South Asian American heritage, right? Now that's a uh, reference to her mom being an Indian immigrant. Duckworth said that reference was incredibly insulting. Oh, was it now? <laughs> so is the contention of Duckworth that Harris doesn't count? By the way, you know, Greg, I think listeners can grasp just how deeply you have to step in the doo-doo to get me jumping to the defense of Kamala Harris <laughs> and Joe Biden for that matter, because Joe Biden, I mean, I'm not going to let's all observe. He could be a clod. The you know, you can't step work into 7-Eleven or a Dunkin Donuts unless you have a slight Indian accent comment of his back from 2006. Joe Biden can be an absolute schmuck sometimes. But does anybody really believe that Joe Biden is racist? Does anybody really believe that Joe Biden thinks less or like he sat around and said, hey, when we put together our cabinet, guys, we can't have any Asian-Americans in it. Come on. That's a ludicrous position. Joe Biden may be a clod, but he's not a racist. And he's tried to put together what in his eyes is the most diverse and, you know, qualified cabinet he has. And if you want to question that judgment, Lord knows you and I have, fine. But you can't say that, oh, he did it because he didn't want to have any Asian Americans in there. Because one, he does have Asian Americans in there. And two, as I went down the list of, you know, not because uh, I decided to, okay, how many people has he nominated for non-cabinet executive branch positions? And he's got, you know, a bunch at the State Department, bunch at the Labor Department, Commissioner of the Federal Trade Commission, uh, Undersecretary, Deputy, like there's a whole bunch of jobs that Asian Americans have been nominated for. Now, the other intriguing aspect here is that when Duckworth kind of poo-poos the notion that Kamala Harris doesn't count, is the question of does an Indian American count as an Asian American? Well, look, if you want to go back to um, the Asia, the National Council of Asian Pacific Americans says, yes, absolutely. And they look at what when um, Sri Srinivasan, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Judge. Uh, but he was, you know, for a while there was talk, he, Obama was going to appoint him to the Supreme Court. Uh, so there's a, they, people debated, does an Indian American count as an Asian American on the Supreme Court? And the attitude of this group is yes. India is considered part of Asia. If you are an immigrant from Indian or your parents are immigrants of Indian, you are considered an Asian American. Now, if you want to, if, if Duckworth wants to say, I disagree with that, I think Indians don't count, fine. She's swimming against the current on this. And I'd really love for her to lay out why Indian Americans don't count. And in fact, I'd really love for her to say to Kamala Harris's face that she doesn't count as an Asian American. Yeah, it, Kamala Harris can't pick her parents. She's got one who's an immigrant from Jamaica and one that's an immigrant from India. Good for her, right? It's one of those things like, you know, you can't argue, oh, she's not Asian American enough or, oh, she's not African American enough. Kamala Harris doesn't have any choice over any of that. This is who she is. Accept her as who she is. And yes, I think she checks that box. And I think she counts for that. But anyway, so Duckworth goes into this. Politico had said, well, this shows that identity politics is complicated. And it's not, is it that complicated? Or is the story simply that Duckworth and Hirono like they just walk, look around looking for reasons to get pissed off. And they are on such a hair trigger over this that one, they will accuse Joe Biden of racial bias or some sort of anti-Asian American discrimination or anti-Asian American uh, animosity keeping them out of his cabinet, even when he's got plenty in his cabinet and his administration. And then two, they'll run around saying that Kamala Harris doesn't count because she's not Asian American enough. That too is racist. Don't tell people who they are. Let them define themselves. Let them say say who they are and who they think is. Anyway, I just think it's the most appalling case of straight up judging people by the color of their skin and by their race that I've seen in the Senate in a long time. 
Both of these senators deserve to be rebuked and, and just mocked by their, their colleagues for the idiocy that they've let forth in this argument. But, Greg, I think I might be the only person who really gets all this bothered by this. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, that was about as racist as it gets in terms of blatant statements on the record. Um, I think you're right that Biden's not a racist. We have talked in the past about how he thinks uh, some demographics, I think particularly African-Americans, need him to help them. Poor kids are just as smart as white kids. Remember that comment? Uh, so I think he has. Yeah, uh, he's, uh, he's a schmuck. He's, he's <laughs> a schmuck. But, but do you think he genuinely doesn't like them? No, or I, think, less I think he them? likes them. I think he thinks that they need him to uh, achieve in some ways. And so I think that right. is the yeah, soft I, bigotry. I can see that argument. The soft, yeah, he's a product of where, who and where he came from and when he, when he came from, meaning that he is going to use te- terminology. I think he talked about, you know, Chinaman and Shylocks. I mean, Biden uses a lot of language that, you know, you'd, you'd say, mm, we don't use those words anymore, sir. You know? Yeah. Well, it's the it's the soft bigotry of low expectations, as George Bush used to tell us. And ultimately, Jim, this goes back to everything America was founded not to be. You know, you, you, you rise and fall on your own merit. You hear it all the time. America is the only place where everybody comes here and, you know, you, you abide by the ideals of this country. You're an American. If you do that, if you go to a different country, you should rise and fall based on uh, your ability, on your record, your qualifications, and not by the color of your skin. That's uh, exactly what this country uh, should not be standing for, and those two senators ought to be uh, distinctly rebuked for that. Uh, the hyphenated American thing, it's great to be proud of your heritage. I'm going to be talking about Greek Independence Day tomorrow, for example. Uh, but uh, when it comes to uh, achieving in this country, you should be evaluated on your individual character, your individual accomplishments and experience. I know I've mentioned this about five times now, but it really is frustrating. No, it's always worth saying, Greg, and I will point out, you put a, 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 a thought out there. I probably am guilty of practicing the soft bigotry of low expectations for Joe Biden. <laughs> That's well, the only way he gets anywhere. Uh, but uh, he's gotten pretty far on that, unfortunately. Jim, uh, have a good day. And I know you'll be, uh, you'll be sipping the Uzo and having some pastizio with me tomorrow. Talk to you then. Sure, Greg. Sure. <laughs> See you tomorrow. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Launch podcast. Also, thank you for those kind reviews and the five-star ratings. Tell your friends about us as well. You can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Launch podcast. And get us on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday, and please join us Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit danaradio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.